0: Today, Nate is joined by musician and music historian Brooks Long to kick off their David Ritz Book Club with a discussion of his book, Brother Ray, His Own Story, the classic autobiography he co-wrote with Ray Charles. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to
1: let it roll. I'm your host Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Brooks Long. And we're going to discuss Brother Ray, Ray Charles's own story by Ray Charles and David Ritz. Brooks, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Uh, well, um, boy, there's so much to tell. That um, <laughs> you were proud for this. <laughs> I'm a, uh, I guess, soul bass singer songwriter in uh, in Baltimore, and you know, I also done some. Uh, uh, community, uh, art stuff, um, in, in town. I actually don't live in Baltimore now, but, but, uh, I'm still heavily involved there. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've been, been playing music for, I don't know, 20 years or so. And, um, um, yeah. Uh, I, uh, my <laughs> elevator speech is, is off, but uh, <laughs> but I've also done some some work in you know music folklore uh, uh, in in Baltimore, um, but I'm interested in it all over the place. So so yeah, I I, uh, I love your show, and I'm glad to be here.
1: And Brooks introduced himself online uh, as a listener of the show, had some suggestions and a correction, and we got to talking, and and we thought we would do a series of uh, discussions about books co-authored or ghostwritten by David Ritz. And I've had David on the show. Great honor, great interview. Um, Busy, busy man. He's still busting out two or three books a year, so um, it's been pretty difficult to get him back, and he's got so many books we need to cover to to do what the show wants to do that – Brooks has graciously volunteered, and uh, this is David Ritz's first book, Brother Ray, Autobiography of Ray Charles, came out in the late 70s, uh, reissued and updated uh, shortly after Ray Charles's death in the 2000s, and it's a really solid autobiography. Um, this is uh, – David Ritz talked to us about – told us his story uh, of how he introduced himself to Ray Charles by way of sending Braille telegrams to get around Ray's handlers and get the the deal cut. You know, he sent him so many lengthy Braille telegrams that he got Ray's attention and started a conversation and and produced this book. So we're going to use that as our platform. It's not the only source we're using, obviously, because Ray Charles lived a big, big life, and there's no way to cover it in just one book. No.
2: <laughs> or even one podcast episode but <laughs> no we'll definitely
1: fun the, trying yeah and so um the the thing with ray charles is i think he's somewhat overshadowed today compared to james brown who's a, a sl- slightly later contemporary james mm. brown's funk innovations obviously you know found the bedrock of hip hop and i think people Currently ranked James Brown up there with Louis Armstrong and Bing Crosby is the absolute you know sort of 20th century master. But Ray Charles, I think you can make a strong case deserves to be up there for he's widely credited with inventing soul music by combining R and B and gospel, which were already pretty closely related. But his his hit song for Atlantic, "I Got a Woman," yeah, you know co- <laughs> covered by Elvis Presley and so forth, and and you know what I say, which was an enormous influence on the Beatles, and. You know, frankly, without Ray Charles, I don't know if you've got Sam Cooke coming over into crossing over into pop. I don't know if you get Otis Redding, Motown, et cetera, et cetera. He just blew the doors wide open in a way that's really hard to fathom today. Because I guess before you had Ray Charles, you had Nat King Cole, who was his model. Sure, Um, but nobody had really had really blown it open. Quite the way he did. Nat King Cole crossed over to a white audience. Sammy Davis Jr. crossed over to a white audience, but Nat King Cole lost a lot of himself on the way. In a way that I don't think Ray Charles did.
2: Yeah, yeah. Certainly, certainly, there was a, a side to to Nat King Cole that that you heard when you know he was primarily on the the race records charts, and then there was the way that you heard him once once he was in the pop field, I wouldn't say that, uh, those, you know, those one side is, is not him. And one side was, but what Ray was able to do was keep putting out for a while, uh, you know, raw, filthy stuff while also, you know, putting out smoother stuff at the same time, you you know, it it all happened at once.
1: And, and arguably his, roughest rock and filthiest song what i say that was his big breakthrough hit and 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 right Ray, got an odd relationship to rock and roll and he talks about it in the book yeah he denies that he's a founding father of rock and roll at the same time he's part of the first class of 10 rock and rollers that was put in the rock and roll hall of fame uh in 1987 when they opened it up and for valid reasons i got a woman you know an early song that's covered by elvis has a massive impact but Ray kind of comes out of this Louis Jordan era of r and b when it's not entirely clear that r and b and jazz are going to bifurcate in the way that they did and Ray yeah. continued to put out jazz albums throughout the fifties and and play jazz had a big jazz style big band all the way up close to the end of his life and so he, he played to a slightly older audience. And another thing I think that's interesting about Ray is he has a string of R&B hits in 54, 55, 56, then kind of goes quiet in 57, 58. Then the peak years of, of the first rock and roll boom comes mm-hmm. back big in 59 with what I say at a time when Paul Anka, Anka and others, you know, sure. Frankie Avalon, and, and they're kind of watering down rock and roll. Ray uh, is at that point, and it's rockin'ist, and so it, it, it's very interesting. I, yeah, I
2: I, uh, I hear you. Definitely, Ray swung to uh, to a crowd that that wanted to feel more adult, and definitely, um, Ray's Ray's passion was. I can't imagine there were too many other uh, rhythm and blues singers at the time that were singing. With more passion than he was, but there's something about it that is still under control. It's like you know when you go to when you go to church and you know you're hearing the first couple of songs, <laughs> um, and you know I don't I don't mean that as any disrespect at all. He still really digs digs in there, but you know just a couple of years after uh, Ray really busts out. Uh, I think uh, we we might talk about Bumps Blackwell a little bit later, but Bumps finds, uh, discovers Little Richard, and he thinks he's got another Ray Charles on his hands. And uh and it turns out that no, they have little Richard and little Richard <laughs> is beyond wild. I'm beyond passionate. he's wild he's he's nuts um really <laughs> uh, and, and all you know the the best great fun ways and you know that that's like the the point in church where you know it, 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 it's just it, it's just, Ecstatic and a, a free for all, and uh, could we even say orgasmic? Absolutely. Uh, uh, which is which is a um, you know, adults don't like to think of themselves as sex crazed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Speak for yourself. Speak for yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I but actually, Ray doing. did. Um, but he, he was able to control it and make it feel more cool. Uh, Little Richard didn't have time for cool. <laughs>
1: Definitely not. And, and you know, Little Richard has his conversion to, to back to the church at the peak of his career in 1957. Elvis is drafted. Buddy Holly goes down in a plane crash. Chuck Berry goes to jail. Ray Charles manages to avoid that kind of downfall until well into the 60s and, and never really, to my mind, drew the same kind of ire from the authorities that that, that so many of the first class of rock and rollers did. Yeah. And, you know, he... he even though he runs into legal trouble with his, his massive heroin habit, he gets pretty good deals from the judges. They don't crush him the way they did Chuck Berry. And, you know, they're certainly not the kind of media animus against him that somebody like Jerry Lee Lewis faced. So, yeah, you know, um, totally, totally unique individual, even though he's yeah amidst this class of people. I mean, there's so many contemporaries of his that come out of the church. He's slightly older than most of them. Um, You know, I'm thinking of like Clyde McFadden, Little Willie John, Sam Cooke, all these guys. Ray's always a little bit distant, but let's go ahead and hear our first Ray Charles song. This is a Baby, Let Me Hold Your Hand from 1951 on Swingtime Records.
0: Baby, let me hold your hand Until I make you understand. Oh, baby. Baby, let me hold your hand.
1: And that's right, Charles doing baby let me hold your hand from nineteen fifty-one and you can definitely hear not just the Nat King Cole, but also the Charles Brown, the singer of and mm-hmm. Blues and Merry Christmas Baby, which, like Edward told us, was the biggest selling uh, black record until Thriller. You know, Ray Charles is one of these cats who's so talented that he can do anything. And... Oftentimes, artists with that kind of raw talent have a hard time finding their own voice, and Ray Charles is no exception. And that was the big frustration with him. He had a number of minor R&B hits in the late 40s, early 50s, but it wasn't until Atlantic buys his contract, and not even immediately when he's with Atlantic. But, but he doesn't find his own voice until 1954 with I Got a Woman. But let's talk about his childhood a little bit, and that's something that the book spends quite a bit of time on and ray charles obviously blind but he doesn't go blind until he's seven he's born into extreme poverty in rural georgia but later moves to florida his his father is not really a factor in his life um but he's got two mothers both his father's wife who's not his biological mother um the, uh, a woman mary jane that he calls mother and then uh he's got his mother aretha that he calls mother and Mama, he calls her Mama, wow. and they're and they're both uh, involved with Bailey Robinson, who was a railroad man and wasn't around. And immediately in the book he starts talking about his br- younger brother, George. And as soon as I hear that, and I'm like, I haven't heard of George Charles. I knew we were in trouble. Um, it, it brought back visions of Johnny Cash's biography and the horrible death of his brother uh, in a sawmill, uh, you know, Rick Hall of of fame studios and muscle shoals and his brother uh, died similarly. And so yeah. little George drives right in front of Ray before Ray goes blind, drowns in a wash tub and, you know, it's just it's just thing after thing. But but Ray feels no self pity. He's go ahead. He's a strong, strong character. He
2: he is a a strong character. You have to <clears throat> you have to think that no nobody can can quite be that strong. But he did. You know, he uh, his mother did. Uh, put some strong foundations in him incredibly independent, man. Uh, and, and also just brilliant and knew he was brilliant too. Uh, didn't mind, didn't mind showing it, even if he didn't like the, the genius label. And, uh, uh, it seems like uh, Ray wants you to know that even at a really young age, his brother, George was, was quite brilliant too, you know, putting together, um, you know, different complex mechanical things when, you know, he was a little kid. Um,
1: uh, yeah. The so, neighbors would come by and, and listen to George do division, which, you know, is a three or four year old kid. Yeah. 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 That, that's, that's, uh, those,
2: those are some, some special kids to, to come out of, uh, of where they came from. And that, that must've been a, a special mom too. Um, but, uh, but you know when when you're in that kind of poverty um you you've, you 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 got to turn it on um and uh he doesn't really talk about it that much but you know the depression is 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 going on while while he's around and um it, everybody was was in devastation uh that uh that bootstraps mentality was was a part of like a a mental
1: survival thing um and uh uh, Absolutely, and and you know they moved from Albany, Georgia, down to Greensville, Florida. But the one thing about Ray Charles that's very different from, say, James Brown, who's grown up in this uh, north. Uh, Brown is up on the South Carolina, Georgia border, but James Brown's got a life of privation in every way because his family isn't strong together, and his father's probably abusive. Yeah. Whereas Ray's father is absent, but between his two mothers, his biological mother, Mama Rita, and his his. The legal wife of his father, Mary Jane Robinson, who he called mother, uh, he's got a very loving family, and they've got a pretty cohesive – it seems like they've got the classic sort of cohesive – culturally cohesive country upbringing. Like he grew up in a small town, knew the neighbors, knew the church folks. They go to church every Sunday. That's where Ray's first exposed to music and obviously the gospel – Music he learns in church is going to be a big factor. But immediately he's hearing boogie woogie piano from a guy named Mr. Pitt, mm-hmm. uh, who, who runs the general store and who takes Ray under his wing from day one and shows him things on the piano. And so he, he's, and he, and Ray talks about this that music was inside him from the beginning and is this palpable force in his life. And that makes me think of Aretha Franklin. She's the only other person that comes to mind. Sure, sure. With, yeah. with that kind of talent where it's just obvious to everybody from day one, this is a special child with a special gift. And, you know, um, but Ray's blindness complicates that. And his mama uh, emphasizes, you know, Ray, you got to look up to yourself. And she's letting him chop wood. He's riding bicycles, yeah. um, you know, running all over. And, and a lot of neighbors are tutting that, you know, she's she's. Being too free with this child, but it, it, it turns out it was absolutely the right thing to do. But sends him off uh, to school to a school for the blind, and I believe Augusta is it Augusta, Florida. I'm, I'm blanking on where the school was. But sends him off uh, to. a what is it, Tallahassee. Um, yeah, it might be Tallahassee. But sends him off to school for the blind and and it, and it reminds me of a christmas carol when ebenezer scrooge is the only kid who has to stay home on christmas break Right. <laughs> charles was very much in that same uh, oh, <laughs> yeah whereas his little mama couldn't afford to to come to send him you know train fare to come home for christmas yeah. break so he had to stay at the school by himself but unlike ebenezer scrooge he doesn't turn to the dark side he very much uh stays engaged with people and, and music is a big part of his his line and You know, and then school. Not only does he learn to socialize with other blind kids and carry himself, you know, and and navigate that social pecking order, but he's exposed to classical music. And they don't talk Mm -hmm. about in the book, but he learned classical music by way of braille, which is an incredible thing to imagine doing.
2: Yeah, he's he's uh, memorizing uh you know, whole passages uh through through Braille, which uh is an amazing thing um you know for us sighted people uh you know maybe um for for and certainly certainly uh Ray Charles in in the book just sort of takes all this for granted. There's all these crazy things or things that, you know, to me, my sighted self uh, would consider to be really, really challenging things if you're blind. Um, but, you know, he talks about it like, yeah, you know, I was just, uh, walking down the street, you memorize, you know, little cracks in the street and, you know, you keep on moving and it's like, (laughs) Jesus, (laughs) yeah, yeah. You ride your bike. You know, I know how, I know, you know, what the terrain is, you know, when I'm riding. So it's fine. And, uh, um, and you, you almost forget sometimes, um, when you're reading about his life that the guy is blind. Um, and yeah, it really is incredible that he can just, you know, uh, read some Braille and, and memorize all of that and make it happen on, the on the, uh, on the piano. And of course, you know, if he messed up, it seemed like it was pretty strict. Uh, if he, you know, messed something up, then, uh, uh, he was going to know about it. Um from his from his teachers
1: absolutely and that kind of disciplinarian streak is something that carries over to ray's life as a band leader like one of the documentaries i was watching you know he said that a complaint he sometimes got was that he would hear secondhand from new musicians in the band. He doesn't even know I'm in the band. And, and they say, well, why don't you try playing a wrong note? <laughs> then Mr. Charles
0: <laughs> yeah. is, is
1: going to uh, know you're in the band real fast. And, and you know, that that discipline is definitely a theme that runs throughout his story. And, oh. and uh, you know, it's, there's, yeah, yes. <laughs> Musical discipline and yeah. professional discipline, but, Personal discipline um, is 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 a different matter. Although he never let it pre- prevent him from taking care of business, no. and at at quite a young age, I think he's 14 when Mama passes away, and he's he's at school, he's unable to be with her, and this is the one time he shows that he discusses real weakness, and it took him like a week. He basically goes catatonic when he gets home, and one of the ladies, one of the church ladies from the community basically slaps him to his senses and i think it's very telling that ray came from a community and and a church community and the people who looked at looked out for each other and despite the material poverty they had real community and 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 that's just bottomless strength there and let's go ahead and hear our second song and this is um we've been talking about a lot and i thought i considered picking some other songs, but I think I Got a Woman is just too pivotal to Ray's career in American music. So this is I Got a Woman from 1954 in Atlantic. Way over town That's
0: good to me Oh yeah Say I
2: got a woman over town Good to me Oh yeah She give me money way
1: and that was Ray Charles' the legendary I Got a Woman on Atlantic Records. And that's the record where he comes in the studio. He's got his own band. He knows exactly what he wants to do. The first couple singles he had put out on Atlantic, the first one, Mess Around, was one that was actually written by Ahmed er- Erdogan, the owner of Atlantic Records. But you know, they, they, they knew Ray needed direction and much as they would later help Aretha Franklin find herself by getting back to soul in the sixties, they were aiming to get Ray Charles closer to, you know, gut bucket blues and uptempo R and B, but it was only when Ray himself had the vision for what he wanted to do and puts, I got a woman together that he really crystallizes as Ray Charles invents soul music. You know, you got, Everybody's listening to this. Sam Cooke, you can imagine. We know Elvis Presley was listening to it because he cuts the cover a cover of it in very short order. But let's get back to our story. And the, the next step Ray does is he leaves school early and goes on his own to a number of cities. I think he goes to Jacksonville and Orlando and just hits it. I mean, you know, has maybe a tiny suitcase and goes out there as a blind kid to make his own living in music and that's not something that would have been possible just a couple decades later this is still an era where if you can play the piano you're going to find some work you're not going to starve even yeah. if you're bone poor but he's he's able to make a living playing piano in these m- mid-sized florida cities they're much smaller than they would become in our era it it should definitely be said that uh that
2: um it took a lot of guts for a, a blind teenager to, you know, go hop around to different cities and uh, and find gigs. It takes a lot of guts and a lot of confidence and, you know, a lot of love of music. <clears throat> However, you are absolutely correct. Um, um, the idea that he would be able to, to hop around and pick up the gigs that he'd need to to, you know, halfway pay the rent, um, you know, even 15 years ago, uh, is, yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine it, but, uh, today, oh man, um, uh, it, it would just be rough. So yeah, he, he definitely had that mix of, of gumption and also just, uh, was, was doing his thing in, in the right era um for w- when you know the the music industry was hot looking for for talented
1: players um yes and it's not even really the industry it's organic it's club by club anytime people wanted to dance at this point you could go to a juke joint and listen to ju- records on the jukebox but yeah that couldn't compete with a live band and so almost any place people wanted to see dance wanted to go and dance they had to pay a live band so there's an opportunity for somebody like Ray Charles he struggles in Florida he fails a big audition with Lucky Millinder who's a major band leader of the time and and that's a real wake-up call to him because I think as talented as he was, he probably took it for granted that he would pass that audition. And it was a real cold slap in the face. And he realized he needed much more seasoning and ends up going to Seattle of all places. Like he, he, I guess he was intimidated by New York and Chicago, even L.A. But he, he goes up to Seattle and he meets Quincy Jones. And, and you mentioned Bump, Bumps Blackwell, who's later famous for producing yeah. Little Richard and and Sam Cook. So he's it's already one of these stories where you've got a mega talented person who's attracting mega talented people before they're famous. You see this over and over and over again in the stories we talk about on the show. And Ray Charles is no exception. Puts together the McSun trio. And begins to have minor hits. He's on downbeat records and then swing time records. He travels back and forth from Seattle to LA, moves to LA for a while. But like we said, he's he's very much trapped. I don't wanna say trapped, but he's he's locked into being an acolyte of Nat King Cole and Charles Brown. And this is one of the things I wanted to talk about with you. We've been discussing this a little bit and prepare for the show. And to me, you know, part of Ray Charles rejecting the notion that he's a rock and roller is that he saw himself as somebody in the tradition of Nat
0: King. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: The tradition of Louis Jordan. And Louis Jordan was a swing band musician before he's the father of R&B there's not this big border between jazz and pop and rock that would later come to exist. And Ray Charles very much saw himself in the mainstream as somebody who's a jazz-based pop performer. And um, I was going to argue that he was kind of the last of that breed, but you argue that he actually inspired many successors.
2: Oh, I, I, I think in a way you're, you're absolutely right. And I, and you're 100% one hundred percent right about the way that Ray feels about himself. Um, I think um, a lot of times uh, musical innovators just aren't able to quite see over the mountain that they're climbing, um, and uh, they're they're. they're they're not able to see the paradigm shift that, that they create themselves. Um, uh, And that's, you know, not to say that, uh, that he shouldn't cherish his, his jazz skills, but he was going somewhere else. Um, uh, But he needed those jazz skills to, to be who he was. And in in so many ways, uh, Ray Charles is just an artist that's sort of, uh like in these in between worlds you know modern and, and and old school there was a time where you just you had to have uh jazz jazz chops you had to have these chops to um to really show that that uh, that you deserved your gigs and you know you de- deserved the the spotlight um, and he had it um, 100%. Uh, but he also had this raw thing too um, that uh, just couldn't couldn't be denied. He was able to to uh, mix uh, aesthetics together in in a way that that's really. Uh, pleasing and he was always commercial. Um, So he loved Art Tatum, but he was never going to all the way 100% commit to Art Tatum, but he still admired the craft enough. Now, you know, when we start talking about somebody like uh, Chuck Berry, who was known for, you know, not always playing in tune all the time, that's never going to happen with Ray Charles. You know, you might listen to a you you see a Chuck Berry gig and he, you know, he didn't play in tune the whole time and people are still smiling. Like, oh man, that's great. Ray would have said, (laughs) man, that sucked. (laughs) You know, what the hell was he doing? Um, uh, And this really goes back to uh, how he felt about himself and how uh, he didn't see himself as a rock and roll uh, musician. And in a lot of ways he's right uh because um because the aesthetic before rock and roll at least in the mainstream um was that you got to have chops and you got to be a master of what you do you can't just grab something and bang on it and and you know think that you're doing anything no 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 you you have to you got to go through the motions you gotta you gotta learn some stuff you you have to to, you have to be able to play the songbook yeah you yeah exactly you gotta be able to play that songbook and there are moments in here where where ray is saying you know we really gotta start letting artists be who they are. We gotta, you know, let things flow. Don't try and force the artist to do this or that. Just let them do what they do. And then a couple of pages later he's saying, but let me tell you something. <laughs> you got <laughs> if you don't, you know, master your instrument, you know, if, if there there's this uh world that um that rock and roll and later hip hop sort of Obliterates, um, well, to a certain extent, with
1: hip hop, and we'll talk but, about how Ray takes keeps that alive after a quick break from a sponsor. And as you were saying, Ray is somebody who sees himself not in this new rock and roll rebel tradition, but as a continuation of the tradition of uh, American entertainers, very much in the steps of Nat King Cole, who was very much in the steps of Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby, and yeah, and and and. Had not only, you know, Ray was always very focused on, on appealing to a black audience and, and knew he was delivering the goods that they wanted, but he he had bigger sights. He wanted to be an all round entertainer and an absolute superstar. Yeah. And I think uh,
2: one, 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 uh quick point that I, I think ties into what you're saying, David Ritz at the end of the, um, uh, the later version uh, equates Ray with, with Louis Armstrong, who near the beginning of his career has, you know, this big explosion, this big innovation. um, And there's a period of time where everything is just new. And then he settles into, um, you know, this using that innovation to, to spread himself out sort of horizontally and uh, what was once startling now becomes like a comfort. Um, and uh, that, that's sort of what Louis Armstrong did. And, and Ray Charles was, was that way too. He, he didn't want to rock the boat after a while and he didn't really need to.
1: Absolutely and and I've always sort of underrated Ray's jazz stuff. And preparing for the show, I went back to listen to some more of it and it was really I was watching the 1986 documentary which is at least half live performance footage from Ray with a symphony orchestra playing. He's got a he's got a rock rhythm section, piano, bass, drums, guitar, but then the rest of it is a symphony orchestra. He doesn't have his big band. It's, there's mm. no horns, it's all strings. And I realized what he was doing with that jazz stuff. He was laying the groundwork to establish himself as a serious musician at a time when there was no audience for serious rock. the The rock revolution happens in the sure. late sixties with albums like *Sgt. Yeah. Pepper's* and later on *Marvin Gaye's*. You know what's going on. There's no analog for that. If you wanted to be a serious album artist, you had to cut jazz, classical, or folk. Basically. And he cut jazz albums. He also did some big band albums. And then, of course, has his massive crossover success on ABC Paramount uh, with country albums. And I think those jazz albums were it, it was a sort of a strategy where he establishes himself as a gut bucket R&B gospel guy with, with I Got a Woman. Then he establishes himself as a legit jazz guy, somebody who can go to the Newport Jazz Festival and more than hold his own, that can steal yeah. the show, that can you know play with Milt Jackson, do duet albums. And the term soul originally applied to jazz as much as any other genre. And, and Ray Charles is very critical in that. Right. And then when he does the country stuff and crosses over to this massive pop audience, he's fully established. He's a supper club guy. He's a guy who's, you know, if, if like studying Motown, I've always been frustrated. Why do they have the Supremes doing these, you know, Broadway (laughs) songs? And why are they trying to do, you know, uh, playing at the Copa Cabana and stuff like that? It's because Barry Gordy had watched what Ray Charles did. And that King Cole and others. And what seemed like the only road to a, to a career with real longevity was breaking into those supper clubs and being an A-list act that could present jazz. And, you know, When I was watching Ray doing that live show from 1986, one of the songs he does is You Can't Take That Away From Me, which I believe it's a Cole Porter or Gershwin song I associate with Frank Sinatra. Ray does it absolutely brilliantly. And to somebody from my mom's generation, Ray's generation, the silent generation between the World War II people and the boomers – that really meant a lot. That meant you were a credible artist. You were somebody serious. You were somebody respectable. And you know, I remember my mom and dad having uh the Ray Charles Modern Country album in there with their Mahalia Jackson. I mean, they had like six albums and it was, you know, mm-hmm. the new Christie Minstrels. Kind of yeah, and and Ray Charles and and Mahalia Jackson and and just a couple other people. And they, you know, they saw themselves as open-minded liberal types and um, you know, but not big music heads. And and Ray broke through to that, and 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 it's it's a uh, it's a real testimony to his sagacity, I think. And 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 you know it, he does great with Atlantic, and, and has a great run with Atlantic. But he gets this offer from ABC Paramount to own his own masters, and and to make an enormous royalty rate, and basically becomes a wealthy man with this record deal. And he delivers on it first with George on My Mind, Hoagy, Hoagy Carmichael's great ballad. And and then that's again another example of of what I'm talking about, where he's confronting the quote unquote great American songbook, the Broadway song tradition, art song tradition that people like Ella Fitzgerald or Frank Sinatra and his hero Artie Shaw uh, yeah. had 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 made. And that's another thing. Ray goes back and forth and talks about white music in different ways throughout the book. Mm-hmm. But he's very open that he was a kid who listened to the Grand Ole Opry every Saturday night. That he was a legit country fan from day one. He he of course grew up with gospel and and the church. He's a big jazz fan. He loves you know you mentioned Art Tatum, that we talked about Nat Cole and Charles Brown. But he also loved you know Frank Sinatra and that that and Artie Shaw, uh, the jazz the swing. Bandleader. And and I only Absolutely. recently realized from talking to the Sinatra biographer James Kaplan that Artie Shaw was one of the first people to create this notion of the great American songbook. That he that those songs have been seen as new hits until Artie Shaw comes along and 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 plays songs that are a few years old because they're the best. And and that allows this repertoire to to survive for a couple decades longer than it would have normally and raised right in there and very aware of that. And yeah.
2: Go ahead. I think
1: um, he, along with
2: with everybody in his generation, um, they grew up with with all of this stuff, and uh, the radio was a really really big deal. Um, and and you know if if you're able to to tune in to the Grand Ole Opry, uh, you're going to do it. That's that's music, you know in your living room without having the band <laughs> you know you can even turn it up or turn it down if you want to um
1: and you don't uh, have to pay for records it's you you, bought the radio you, it's there
2: you don't have to pay for records everybody knew these songs uh there's a there's a book i'm forgetting the author right now but it's called segregating sounds and uh it's a really great look at at how um it, it, it's it's trying to get people to see differently about the Southern musical landscape, um, or, you know, pretty much um, throughout the 20th century and, and a little bit before. Um, every, everybody was listening to everything. It's not just like, you know, black guys and black people were sitting around listening to the blues and jazz all the time and white people listen to, uh, to country and stuff. No, all of this is happening all over the place, even on the streets, but especially on the radio. Um, and, uh, so yeah, he absolutely was doing this for crossover success. He, he, knew that, uh, it was going to get him there. Um, although he didn't start out doing that stuff. So he knew that, you know, I, I can't start off doing it. I, uh, they can't take that away from me, but eventually I'm going to be popular enough where I'm going to do this and people will think differently, uh, about me. But at the same time, he loved that stuff. Um, and, and and really grew up with it, um, in a way that I think is hard for modern audiences to get, get their heads around, um, that, uh, that technology as well as just, you know, community, uh, was really exposing people to wider
1: things than, than we would think. Absolutely. And let's hear one of his first hits from ABC Paramount. This is Percy Mayfield's Hit the Road, Jack. What's Ray Charles doing Percy Mayfield's Hit the Road Jack, and you hear the Ray here, and this is something he's doing. He starts his own band in Texas. Uh, David Fathead Newman, his tenor saxophonist, is kind of the anchor of that, uh, his right-hand man all the way through. And, and you know, Ray, as a singer-songwriter and arranger, what he needs is a lead voice, and, and, and Fathead Newman is one of several uh, that fills that role for him but the ray lads come in as his counterpart, oh, yeah. as as very much something out of the church that call and response thing that goes back to the black gospel tradition and you know this is a massive massive number one hit and establishes ray you know this this trifecta of what i say as his last atlantic single and then georgia on my mind and hit the road oh, jack that's one of them. Yeah. yeah, just boom, 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 really puts him at the top of the music field, and then when he follows it up with modern uh, sounds in and country um, western, and now I'm blanking on the Don Gibson song that that is his absolute biggest song of his career. But was
2: well, that Crying Time or uh, No or it's, um, you, oh, uh, I can't stop I can't loving stop you. Can't loving you, right? Yeah, right.
1: yeah. Uh, and also uh, Carl Hagstrom Miller is the guy who wrote "Segregating Sound," which is still. I thank you. Yeah, on my to-read list, but yeah, so yeah. so Ray just absolutely conquers the world in this period and uh, the book does a great job of covering all this stuff but and and then and then his struggles with heroin uh, become a big part of the narrative and he's arrested i think in 61 and again 60 Four, and then 65, he has to take a year off, put himself in the hospital, you know, beg for clemency from the judges. But he gets it. And um, he's never quite the same hit maker that he was before. But he he does come back with some hits. And this is one area where the book kind of disappointed me. And I was curious. I see your take on it, because he follows up his comeback. He's got. Multiple songs, um, by Ashford and Simpson. Uh, yeah. who are, are going to go on to to become, you know, the, the really the second wave, a huge part of the second wave of Motown, along with Norman Whitfield, and um, and there was another woman that co-wrote those songs with them, um, Joe Gerald Amistad. Amistad, yes. And these are just classic songs that directly confront his drug problems. Let's go get stoned, <laughs> yeah. and I don't need no doctor. And they're not massive hits, but they very much established Ray as. Unbowed, he's he's playing up-to-date material and he's indirectly addressing you know his problems and not apologizing you know not backing down at all um, and, no. and it's 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 just incredible that the strength that comes through uh, with Ray Charles is just it's inspiring there's no other way around it and unlike james brown who's got that kind of strength through the first half of his career james brown it loses falls his son
2: part yeah yeah
1: he loses his son and and discovers pcp and it totally falls apart for the rest yeah. of his life and he becomes this sad figure ray charles never does that ray charles has the money that he earned from his abc paramount deal he he basically accomplished everything Sam Cooke looked like he was about to accomplish before he got himself killed. Hit the satellite. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and you know Ray's got his own recording studio. He's he's got his own operation. He's a a popular popular touring act to the end of his life. And this is something. And, and you might be too young to remember this the way I do, but Ray Charles was ever present in the seventies and eighties. I mean, he was just a celebrity. He was on the Muppet show. He was on good morning America. If you saw Ray Charles on TV, you were just like, Oh, of course, Ray Charles is on TV. All is right with the world. I mean, he, it was really still that way. Uh, there's only so much of the
2: eighties. I remember, but <laughs> he was, he was still around in the nineties. Um, yeah. When I when I think about some of the first musicians that I can remember, definitely that Diet Pepsi uh, commercial is like I still remember the melody. Uh huh. You know, you got the right one, baby. (laughs) Like, you know, I I associated Diet Pepsi with with Ray Charles and Ray Charles with Diet Pepsi. Um, You know, and they just don't give those uh, those endorsements away to uh, to anybody.
1: Um, No, he was earning uh, his paycheck on that. I
2: mean, absolutely, and he was all about the paycheck too. Oh yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, I, 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 think you're, you're right. There's, there aren't many um, musicians or individuals period that, that are able to, you know, uh, is, is maintain their addiction and maintain their, their careers and their sanity and all. And also, um, you know, get, get beyond it and survive and have a, a really thriving career, uh, as well. Um, you know, Ray throughout the book is unapologetic, um, about what he did and, uh, also, you know, maintained that, uh, that, you know, I can go on without it, uh, which, which I think, I think those things were seem to be mainly true, although, you know, I've heard in in interviews that uh, that David Ritz says that he, you know, was still smoking weed and and drinking gin and syrup every single day. Um, So, you know, he had his
1: his substitutes. Yeah. They call it marijuana maintenance in AA. And and I think he was a practitioner, but unlike somebody like Johnny cash or Ozzy Osbourne, where they have these legendary cleanup moments and then they're constantly falling off the wagon. Or if you ever see them live, you know, maybe they've got needle point pupils or something, right? somebody, really feel like did clean up his act at least from the heroin but the womanizing is totally unrepentant and the two of of those things had had a really negative effect on his marriage and his his parenthood i mean if you see interviews with his kids they'll talk about walking in on ray shooting up and and cutting himself and bleeding everywhere and not even being aware of it or you know the the, he had a 27 year marriage uh, with one of his wives and, and that you know ended in 1977 you know, because of the womanizing and the, the heroin, So he was, you know, no rock star is going to be an easy partner. And and no. Ray was certainly no exception. And and I think a lot of the stuff, you know, the joke was about, you know, if you're going to be in the Raylets, you got to let Ray. There's definitely this undercurrent of misogyny, exploitation of women that would not go over as well today as it did when he was alive. No. And what is
2: so interesting, I, I think, uh, unfortunately... Um that that was somewhat par for the course um in in the entertainment business and probably in society in general. Uh not you know not to you know excuse it at, at all. Um but Ray has some stuff in here where it, it really sounds like he totally gets. Um, feminism and that, you know, he totally, he he says, you know, women have been, you know, getting hell for, for a long time and, and they don't deserve it. And some, some stuff you read in here is just incredibly modern. And, and, uh, when, when he talks about, uh, his feelings on drugs too, um, you know, you, you might be thinking that, that you're reading some article from yesterday and then, uh, again, he's got this modern thing and he's got this old school thing. Um, at the same time that, you know, he talks about how women really need to get their due, at the same time, he's he's talking about, you know, convincing uh, a, a woman to stay at the orgy and stuff like that. And it's like... Whoa, whoa! You know, <laughs> and then he talks about he he talks about his kids, and at some point you're like, and then I had this kid, and then I had that kid, and then this other woman starts coming and saying, I got her kid. And I'm like, Ray, how many kids do you have?
1: <laughs> do uh, you yeah. know? According to Wikipedia, uh, it's twelve kids by ten different women. So yeah. Uh. pretty Uh, prodigious that's a lot Ray that's
2: yeah a lot um yeah I I I think that um you know what Ray says is what it is and and um and certainly at least when this book came out in 1978 uh he was he, he didn't seem particularly repentant about um about the ways that that he treated women, um, uh, yeah, that's, especially that's... his his you know wives who you know were
1: constantly being disrespected. Um, but uh, that was the era. That was nineteen seventy eight for you. But let's hear one last Ray Charles song. This is "I Don't Need No Doctor." I don't, you know, Doctor Ray Charles in the late '60s, written by uh, Ashford and Simpson and, and Amistad. Uh, incredible song, incredible stuff. Uh, somebody needs to do a book about Ashford and Simpson because they are, you oh, know, Valerie Simpson is yeah. just a musical genius and and such a key part of musical history. And working with Ray, in addition to their Motown hits, but uh, only uh, the one thing that we didn't get to that I wanted to was was sort of his apprentice period because you know, we talked about how he failed the audition with Lucky Millinder, but I do want to mention that he played for Lowell Folsom. He, Absolutely. he produced yeah. and arranged guitar slims, things I used to do and, um, and, and, you know, played for Ruth Brown and others. And so he had a real apprentice period as well. Uh, you know, the period when he was doing the Nat King Cole type imitation songs and having the minor R and B hits, he was also out on the road constantly and serving an apprenticeship for some very key artists. Any other final thoughts you, you want to have before we wrap?
2: Um Well, you know, I, uh, I, one thing is, is that, um, I was really impressed with, uh, with David Ritz's writing. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, really excited to, to, uh, keep going with this series because it's just an enjoyable read, uh, read reading brother Ray is just like sitting down with, with, you know, Ray Charles sitting down with your, you know, unrepentant musical genius uncle. And, uh, and, um, he really captures the music. Like, as, as you said, um, um, Ray Charles was just everywhere for a long time. He was just one of those elder statesmen people. So we know how he talks and everything. And so, you know, if there was a false sentence in here, you know, I think that either one of us would have been able to detect it. And uh, it just moves beautifully the way that that Ray talks and in that musical way that you know he also probably approaches music. Uh and the other thing that I'd say to to get back to um his interactions with jazz, um <clears throat> I uh I forgot to, to mention just how influential this guy was to uh to jazz because you know in in his in his wake um, you you start getting like Art Blakey and Horace Silver and uh, Ramsey Lewis and people like that who are really doing some like greasier stuff stuff that's definitely still bop and and all but it's got some greasy you know real down home blues feel going on in there and then there's also the this other aspect of him w- which is like. Uh, bringing the sort of bop innovations of of jazz into pop in this really cool, sometimes still greasy uh, way, um, which I, I think you know, I don't think you get any of James Brown's eras probably w- without. Uh, Ray Charles uh, or Etta James. And I don't think you get, you know, Marvin Gaye or, or Steely Dan or Stevie Wonder either. Absolutely. Uh, or
1: Charlie Pride. Um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, to I to take, bring back to country. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely laid the groundwork commercially. And yeah, you're just and I'm just starting to explore this but like cannonball Adderley, yeah uh, you know plays with miles davis but then he has kind of more of a pop move in the 60s mercy, and mercy, i think mercy, he's yeah i think he's definitely following the ray charles lead and the whole birth of smooth jazz uh maybe you could even blame ray for kenny g if you if you take it out yeah. far enough <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, yeah. but-, but he he kept a commercial lane open for jazz i think and and that's Easy to underrate as somebody like myself who grew up on Ornette Coleman and free jazz and Albert Ayler and all this stuff that had you know no or negative commercial impact, but <laughs> but uh, you know what Ray was doing and what his acolytes did in his wake. Reached a whole lot of people and, and that impacted music in just a massive way. So, yeah, well, coming into this, I was thinking of Ray as somebody who's this absolute stone innovator early on, who becomes this sort of retro force um, later on. But I think that's wrong. I, th- I, th- I think Ray continued to innovate and pioneer all the way through. And even just being an African American celebrity in the era that he did was absolutely trailblazed. You know, now King Cole dies very young, tragically, of, of lung cancer. Ray picks up the torch and just carries it all the way through the end of the 20th century, and it's just an incredible accomplishment. So Brooks, uh, this Brooks Long special guest will be back for more of our David Ritz Book Club. The book is Brother Ray, Ray Charles's own story. Are we going to do Marvin Gaye next or Aretha or what?
2: Um, I'm, I'm down for, for anything. I, I've, uh, I'm sitting right here with, uh, with Divided
1: Soul. Uh, let's so, do it. let's do Marvin next I think that was that was Ritz's next book and that's one that Ritz yeah. wrote himself because of Marvin Gaye's tragic yeah. passing at the hands of his father so Brooks looking forward to it it's been fun we'll see you next time all right great talking with you
0: follow the let it roll podcast on twitter at let it and check out our website at let it roll Next week, Nate will be back with music journalist and music biz veteran Michael Oberman to discuss his book, Fast Forward, Play, and Rewind, a chronicle of the touring musicians of the late 1960s, including some legendary anecdotes about David Bowie's first visit to the USA. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas and Danny Park. Brother Ray, His Own Story is available from DeCapo Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.